Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Sports Podcast. My name is James Robinson. I am a third-year PhD candidate at Northeastern University's History Department. Today, we have a great interview with David A. Goldstein, author of the book, Alley Oop to Alley Ah, African-American Hoopsters in the Holy Land. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did doing the interview. Welcome back to the New Books and Sports podcast. Uh, we're joined with our guest today, David Goldstein, the author of Alley Oop to Aliyah, African-American Hoopsters in the Holy Land. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So David Goldstein is a journalist and sports executive based in Toronto, Canada, he is the chief operating officer of U Sports, which is the Canadian equivalent of the NCAA. He's also an adjunct prof- professor of sports law at the University of Toronto, and he lectures on the topic at his alma mater, Osgood Hall Law School in New York University. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your, where you're from, your academic path. Sure. Uh, born and raised in Toronto, as you mentioned, uh, went to high school here and then ended up at, just outside Chicago at Northwestern, where I did journalism uh, and loved uh, studying journalism more than I probably even expected to when I went into it. And in addition to journalism, did a, a concentration in African-American studies. And so really, the, this book really combines those two things, as well as my upbringing. I'm Jewish. My mom's Israeli. Uh, so all of those things kind of combined in, in this project and then uh, went back to Toronto uh, for law school and practiced for uh, almost 10 years. And then, as you mentioned, went over to U Sports in a business role, uh, but always kept uh, writing and specifically sports writing and basketball in particular on the side. And, and that's uh, ultimately what led to this. Great. How did you uh, the larger project the sort of intersection between Israeli sports culture and African-American professional basketball players. Uh, what led specifically into this project? Uh, so I'd actually been going to Israel every year growing up because my mom was from there. So her whole family's there. And, and I'd always been uh, visiting family there every year. But it was on a visit actually just over 10 years ago, 10 and a half years ago uh, in May 2007, uh, visiting my grandparents and they live in an assisted living complex, uh, in Jerusalem and they had some friends over and, and, you know, I mentioned something about being from Toronto and this group of 80 something Eastern European Jewish women who I never would have pegged in a million years for sports fans just started raving about Anthony Parker and he was a player on the Raptors and, and they knew all about him. Uh, and they, they kept referring to him in these, Hebrew and Yiddish terms of endearment. They called him a Ziskite and a mensch and all this stuff. And I thought that's so interesting. You know, here's this African-American basketball player from Naperville, Illinois. And yet these women not only knew about him, knew where he played now and loved him as a person. And that really got me thinking about basketball in Israel and African-American players in Israel. And that's what started the whole thing. I mean, that's not something that 
uh, Americans generally think of as going together. No, exactly. So one of the themes of the book is the one of Israel to prove itself in the European leagues. Uh, so what is that balance between recruiting foreign players and developing pro-Israeli players? So it's one of the big challenges, and it's this is an element that isn't necessarily unique to Israel. Every pro league in Europe has this kind of balance where uh, you want to bring in the best players because that gives you the best chance to compete in Europe and internationally. It also gives you the best product, right? Better players should mean better games. The challenge is if you bring in a slew of foreigners, then, you know, whether it's Israel, Italy, Spain, uh, you know, how are your young players going to develop if they don't get playing time and they don't get shots? And those shots and, and those minutes are going to someone from, uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, an African-American from the States. Uh, and so Israel has always had kind of a changing rules to protect uh, their local players. They used to only allow one foreigner, then they allowed two. Uh, then they allowed, you know, more than than some would have thought they should. And so they said, well, we've got to have two Israelis on the court all the time. So they're always trying to find that balance between uh, raising the level of play uh, and also protecting the uh, the development of their own players. So one of the themes I came across was was how did the players feel, both the Israeli and the African-Americans, about about that tension um, sort of mentioned uh some elements of, of race, both positive and negative, um, in the book. So I was wondering if you could expand on that for this interview. Of course. Uh, you know, I spoke to Omri Caspi, for one, being the, the prime example of a, a native-born Israeli who did make it uh, all the way to the NBA and now a, a long and productive NBA career. Uh, and he kind of he understood both sides, but he raised some really interesting points about uh, the African-American players that he competed against raising his level. So when you're competing, you only get better by playing people that are better than you. And so he was a, you know, a super talented young player. And if he had just been competing against the people in his country, he would have been better than everyone and uh, kind of capped out. And, and he said that he learned from Anthony Parker and Dion Thomas and Ariel McDonald and all these guys who played in Israel, these African-American players, he learned a work ethic that he didn't see in, in Israeli players, that they uh, showed him the dedication, a different level of dedication. Uh, you know, and a lot of players, African-American players said that, you know, in Israel, basketball is a game. It's it's a sport. It's fun. It's a distraction from from life. Whereas for a lot of African-American players, it's a vocation. It's It's how they make their living and they take it that much more seriously. And it gives Israeli players a real example to follow that, these guys have played high-level college. They've played, you know, in some cases, NBA or high-level European uh, leagues, uh, and they raise that level. So everyone understood the balance. And one of the things I found really interesting was some of the African-American players who ended up making their life in Israel, becoming citizens and staying, uh, when they had this conversation, they talked about, we need to protect our players and, uh, and make sure our young players have a chance to develop. And even though they came over to Israel as African-American players that came over as foreigners, when they said we or our or us, they meant Israelis and young Israelis. And I thought that was a really interesting transition uh, or, or change in a, a player's identity. Hmm. We'll come back to that in a, in a minute. But you had mentioned that uh, it's essential for all of these leagues to have foreign players to elevate their own play. Um but in, in the book, 
you had mentioned that European players don't particularly come to Israel. Uh, it's, it's almost all African-American players. So why, why is that? Um, why is that so dominant? Well, you know, in the NBA, you see plenty of European players. It's a really interesting question, and it's not one that I got a definitive answer for. There were a lot of different explanations, but to your point, I mean, you know, I looked at it and I saw in Israel by my stats, and it's not a scientific uh, survey by any stretch, but uh, it looked like between, you know, 80% or more of the foreign players in the Israeli league uh, in the last, in the couple of years that I checked were African American. And I looked just as a sample, I thought here, you know, here are a couple of comparables, Italy and Greece. They're both kind of Mediterranean countries, warmish climates, uh, and they were in the low 60s. Uh, and so they brought in a lot of players from other European countries, not just African-American uh, players from the U.S. And, and so I was curious about that. And some players said that there's a similarity in style of play. Uh, that Israel is a bit more up and down, a little bit less structured, a bit more uh, appealing to African-American players. You know, I, one of the theories I raised and, and I got some interesting feedback and support was, you know, African-Americans and Jews share a history of persecution, obviously. And uh, the Jews went through the Holocaust, you know, six million people killed and, uh, you know, uh, just a horrendous uh, piece of history. Um, and they also face anti-Semitism in a lot of European countries still today. And I was curious whether Israeli owners uh, were reluctant to bring over players from countries that either currently or historically have had negative experience with Jews and negative treatments of Jews that you don't see with African-Americans. There haven't been any large scale genocides or inquisitions or anything like that. Um, so I didn't get, you know, obviously anything definitive. You can't prove anything like that. But a lot of the players said it made a lot of sense and that, uh, you know, some players even said, Israeli owners may be reluctant to bring over European players and some European players from countries that have a checkered history with Jews may be reluctant to go over themselves. So uh, I, I would never say that that's a, a definitive fact, but it's a really interesting aspect of it uh, that I thought was uh, was quite fascinating to look into. Yeah, that is interesting. OK, so thinking about some of the experiences of African-American players, uh, you had a a wide range of reasons why black players move to Israel. Um, some stay, some convert to Judaism, some don't. Um, so what were some of the stories that uh, you came across in writing this book? Well, I think there's a lot of very simple reasons that Israel was appealing to players. Uh, you know, it's a very warm weather. It's a beautiful climate. Uh, you know, tons of people in Israel speak English. The vast majority speak English uh, fluently and want to speak English. So that makes it a bit of an easier transition. Uh, it's a very Americanized culture and a very pro-American culture. So you can you can find the, the fast food restaurants and a lot of the things that you're used to. So there were a lot of things like that that made it easier for players to come over and come back year after year. But one of the kind of bigger picture reasons to me, you know, Israel is a country that's very uh very heavily criticized. It's very heavily scrutinized internationally. When it's in the news, it's usually in the news for a negative reason. There's usually some violence or some conflict or it's accused of, of some wrongdoing. And so for Israelis to have players that came from outside, non-Jewish African-American players that could have played anywhere in the world, and for them to choose to live in Israel, even for a season, that's a big compliment. And if they choose to come back 
years in a row and, and speak highly of Israel and maybe even take less money to return year after year, that's an even bigger compliment. And then if you choose to stay and become a citizen, and in some cases you're even serving, serving in the army, uh, you know, that's the biggest compliment. And so in that context of negativity to have these players from outside choose the country, uh, those players are beloved. I think at a level that's unique to Israel. It's not just you're popular because you're a basketball player. You're validating the country. You're supporting the country and you don't have to. So there's a real special bond and feeling uh, that I think is really quite unique to Israel. And that's what ultimately leads a lot of players to take less money, come back year after year or, or even stay. What was the insult uh, that supposedly uh, the coach of, of, of Maccabee? Sure. Obviously, no country is perfect. Yeah. And, and one of the examples uh, that came up in a, in a negative context was uh, Penny Gershon was the coach of Maccabi Tel Aviv, the, the biggest and most successful team in uh, in Israel and one of the most successful in Europe. Uh, and he was recorded. He gave a speech to uh, to Israeli military officers and it was supposed to be a speech about leadership. And he went off on a, on a something of a tangent and made what he, he has said it was meant to be a lighthearted joke. Um, but he talked about essentially it was about knowing your audience. And, and he said that, you know, even among blacks, there's there's different uh, levels of intelligence. And he said the lighter skinned uh, mocha colored players, and these are his words, obviously, um, are more intelligent. And the darker skinned players are, are less intelligent and more obedient and, and closer to slaves. You know, and, and it, it was obviously quite upsetting to hear. And, and uh, everyone was uh frustrated by it and, and he resigned, uh, although he did ultimately get back into basketball and, and was accepted back by even African-American players. Uh, and I spoke to a lot of them about it. And, and essentially the, the theme was, you know, his words obviously weren't justified and, um, and, and he should regret them and they were upset by them. But generally speaking, the players still, you know, just didn't think of him as a racist and, and didn't harbor that kind of resentment toward him. And he was able to return to coaching and coach African-American players to EuroLeague championships. So, you know, it was a, obviously a, a rough thing to, to hear and, and people were quite upset, but he apologized for it. Uh, the players ultimately were okay with it. Uh, and it was really an exception more than the rule. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you mentioned Maccabi Tel Aviv, sort of the Yankees of Israeli basketball. So, um, yeah, I'm curious how that helped how that's helped drive Israeli basketball. Um, uh, that's always the tension in, in the Yankees of uh, sports leagues um, in that they can destroy competitive balance, but at the same time, they, they sort of come to represent these leagues. So um, yeah, what's, what's, what's the story of Maccabi Tel Aviv and black uh, basketball players? Well, you, you hit the tension right on the head. Uh, they dominate the league. They have the highest payroll. They get the best players and management and coaches. And so it's a bit of a love-hate. Uh, you know, there are some that just don't like them no matter what. But generally speaking, uh, it, even Israeli fans that are domestically fans of other local Israeli teams, when Maccabi plays on a Thursday night in the EuroLeague, generally speaking, they tend to be, you know, representing the whole country and supported by the whole country. And again, in, in Israel, 
some things take on an extra meaning because of where they are, you know, geopolitically within the international community. So the biggest example of Maccabi Tel Aviv really raising up the whole country and lifting the whole country, not just in a basketball way, was their first European Cup championship team in 1977, uh, which featured an African-American player from Newark named Alcee Perry. And this was a, a team that this was a country that in 1973 had just had the Yom Kippur War, its its most uh, uh, difficult war with the most uh, killed soldiers and, and really just a, the roughest stretch for the country. Uh, a few years later, there was the Munich massacre at the Olympics. So these were rough days for Israel. And Maccabi Tel Aviv, led in part by Alcee Perry, went ahead and for the first time ever won the European Cup championship and, and in doing so even beat Cheska Moscow. Uh, which is the Russian team, and Russia didn't even recognize that Israel's right to exist. So, you know, diplomatically, it happened on a basketball court, but it was a pretty huge moment for Israel, and it really put them on the map. Um, and Maccabi, since then, has always been kind of the dominant franchise. But, they're, you know, they, they're dominant, so they're beloved on Thursdays, but very often they're criticized the rest of the week. Right. So, yeah, being in Tel Aviv, uh, What's the sort of differences uh, between the experience of African-American players on Maccabi versus um, a small town, for instance? Well, Maccabi is the, the biggest team, the best run team. So you're living right in Tel Aviv, which uh, for any of your listeners that haven't been, it's a cosmopolitan city. It's got great nightlife. It's, you know, it's been compared to Miami, to New York. You're living right in the center of the, the biggest city. You're, you're making the most money because Maccabi is the, the most successful uh, team in Israel. Um, and really, you're treated, you know, like the biggest star there is. Uh, Maceo Bastin said there were like 15 Michael Jordans walking around Israel. Uh, that's how, how revered Maccabi Tel Aviv was. And in the smaller uh, teams, you could be, you know, if you're playing in the Israeli second division, you might be playing in a town uh, that's in a moshav or in a, kib- in a kibbutz, which are these uh, uh, interesting settlements. They're collectives. They're they're different than uh, than a normal city. Um, or you can be playing in a suburb of Tel Aviv, or you can p- be playing way in the north or way in the south. You know, the players said they were still beloved. Uh, they were still popular. It was just at a, at a very different level. But they also got a chance to interact more day to day with with regular Israelis. So it was, it was much more immersive as far as becoming a part of uh, the true Israeli culture. You, you weren't quite the rock star that uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv star would have been. Hmm. Yeah. And so they have a relegation system. So I'm, I'm imagining that the limits on players is an attempt to, to bring about parity at the highest level. It's a combination. Parity's one. Obviously, if, if Maccabi could only bring in a couple of foreigners, then, you know, there's more chance for the others to get great foreigners. The biggest thing is to make sure that it's giving Israelis the chance to play uh, and the chance to get minutes, because there were a lot of examples of, you know, at a time when eventually the rules got so lax that some teams could have five, six, seven foreigners. Uh, and once you're bringing in a foreigner and paying them more than a, an Israeli, the pressure is to play them more. And so you've got teams that, that might have one Israeli on the court for, you know, a few minutes in a game. And the argument was you're, you're losing that connection. Not only are you not able to develop your Israeli players, but you're losing a connection to your Israeli fans. They want to be able to relate, uh, at least, you know, to some players that have been where they're from and, and made it to that team. 
and then it's not just you know former college players from the U.S. Right. Switching it up a bit to a lighter-hearted side, um, one of your chapters is entitled "They're Not in Kansas Anymore," looking at sort of the differences in culture. Uh, um, so, what were some of the stories around food or language or or whatever else? Oh, there are some great ones that you know. A lot of the players that talks about the fact that you, you don't really need to learn Hebrew all that well because everyone does speak English. But, you know, players told me about trying to learn Hebrew and the challenges of that. Uh, one of the big differences between Israel and, and some other places, the people, they're extremely warm uh, and friendly. And there's a lot in the book about how players felt welcomed on Shabbat and Jewish holidays and things like that. But the flip side of that coin can be, uh, they're also, they tend to be a, a little bit aggressive or uh, abrasive. And the players had great stories about, you know, run-ins with Israelis. And, uh, you know, they'd tell me funny things like, you know, when you go to the airport, every country has a lineup to get to its airline. But in Israel, it doesn't seem to be a lineup. It's just a mob of people because everyone's trying to butt each other. Uh, and so I got some great stories from players, you know, six foot nine, 250 pound player gets in line at the bank. And, and three people try to sneak in front of him. And he's saying, I, I know you can see me. I'm, I'm six, nine, two fifty, you know, um, or, or players, you know, complaining about going to the supermarket and everyone just cutting in front of them in line. Or, uh, you know, even at one point I was sitting interviewing a player and a woman sat next to us and, and he answered his cell phone during our interview. Uh, and she started kind of yelling at him to, to keep it down. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you're not alone here in the cafe. And he, he barked right back at her and he turned, you know, he turned around and he just kind of laughed. He said, that's just Israeli society. So there were some great, you know, funny stories about that sort of thing. Drivers in Israel tend to drive a little bit uh, on the wild side. And so there were some great stories about, uh, you know, how, how different that was and how players discovered that, you know, the hard way with the honking of a horn. Um, so there were, there were definitely some lighter moments and some funny moments in the book for sure. So take it from the lighter side to the more serious side. Um, one of the chapters is on, uh, violence. Um, so as you mentioned, most of the news that we come out of, that comes out of the region is, is around conflict. Um, I, I am curious, uh, about the reaction to, uh, African-American players who settle in Israel around issues of Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, sure. uh, I didn't see much discussion in, about settlements, Palestinians or BDS controversies. Mm -hmm. So do you think it has to do with their immersion in Israeli society or something else or? You know, it was, it was an interesting one because I, I, of course, asked everyone about it. Uh, but one of the focuses that I had in writing the book was to make sure that this was a book about their perspective, the African-American players perspective. What was important to them? What was impactful to them? Uh, you know, what was significant to them about their life in Israel? And the vast majority of the topics that I was going to ask players about, they tended to come up organically because the players brought them up as, as important parts of their life anyway. So I didn't even have to ask half of my questions. But issues of the Palestinian conflict and the West Bank and settlements, uh, they never came up organically. Uh, I asked, you know, 40 players about it. And the general consensus was, you know, I, I don't involve myself in it or a, kind of a simple, look, I live in Israel. I support the Israeli side of this. 
but they didn't get into it in a, in a lot of detail. And, and to me, uh, I didn't want to interject myself and, and my perspective or, or force anything into the book. And so I gave everyone a chance to talk about it. Those that had, you know, there were some interesting stories. I, I give a good example of one of them and, uh, and I can mention it if you want, but generally speaking, it didn't meet their materiality threshold for what was significant. And so it didn't make it into the book because it wasn't that important to them. Yeah. I'd be curious about that one example. Uh, so there was one player who, who became a citizen and stayed in Israel and, and lives there now in, into his fifties. Uh, and he actually played, he kept playing on a third division team, uh, in Israel and he was playing in a, for a small Arab village. And this was, uh, at a point, at a time where there were a lot of stabbings, uh, of Israeli citizens, uh, by, uh, Palestinians, uh, or by anti-Israel, uh, activists. And so they would, there were a lot of stabbings of Israeli citizens, uh, military or otherwise. And he was asked about it by the media and he referred by the Arab media in Israel. And he referred to them as senseless killings. And the Arab media got quite upset and his coaching staff got quite upset. And, and it was written that he, you know, he hates Arabs and you could hear it in his words. And he said, look, I don't hate Arabs at all. I just I love Jews. And, and he had converted to Judaism. And, and his point was, you know, if you're if you're killing someone in a, in a surprise attack or if you're killing someone who's just a regular citizen on their way back from work, that's a senseless killing, you know, no matter what's going on. And so. You know, that I thought was an interesting story, and that was a significant thing that had happened to him. So I included it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that and that I thought was reflective of his position on it. Mm -hmm. But most of the other players were somewhat ap apolitical or apathetic. Yeah, so exactly. You know, some apathetic, some frankly apolitical and some just quite simply, you know, their answer was, I live in Israel. I, I support the Israeli side and, and didn't want to get into it uh, further. I've, I've since talked to some players, you know. This was a 10 plus year process in writing this book. Uh, and BDS, for example, really picked up steam after I'd already written the manuscript and, and most of it was done. Uh, you know, and, and I spoke to some players in passing in, in recent months once the book was already submitted about that in a bit more detail. You know, and, and a lot of players, I think, were quite frustrated that there's some some things going on on campus, some anti-Israel sentiment that they would love to speak out against. Uh, and so I think, you know, in, in promoting this book and in speaking of players, uh, you know, they're they're interested in, in dispelling some things that they they view uh, as misguided and, and misperceived. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think is so interesting is that, you know, if if an Israeli person speaks on behalf of Israel, it carries some weight. But if an African-American basketball player, you know, does it, I think it, it carries even more weight because they're really not involved or, or it's not their fight to begin with. And they they view it, you know, somewhat objectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that makes me curious um, about the sort of process for why an African American uh, basketball player uh, ends up staying, uh, and in some cases ends up converting to Judaism. Um, maybe even not learning Hebrew, but in some cases yeah. do am learning her, uh, Hebrew. Yeah, so the the players that stayed, I mean, they really talked about feeling accepted, feeling embraced. Um, generally speaking, not you know 100%, but generally speaking, they did not feel racism, uh, and a lot of them said they felt less racism in Israel than in the U.S. Uh, and so I think that was part of it. And, and again, I think going back to my earlier point, you know, when you 
when you're from outside Israel and you support Israel, it carries a lot of extra weight there. And I think that's a big part of why they felt so embraced. And, and for a lot of them, it was kind of a subtle transition from being reluctant to go to Israel in the first place to, you know, now they're coming back every year and turning down bigger deals because they're starting to like the country. And then suddenly, you know, you've been there 10 or 15 years and, and you don't want to leave. And that's where you live. And, uh, you know, uh, Fred Campbell is a great example. He's a player feature throughout the book. And, and he said, uh, I don't live in Israel. I live Israel, you know, and, and uh, he's someone that converted to Judaism. And, and he did that for, for personal reasons. And he married an Israeli woman and um, and just fell in love with the religion. And a lot of players didn't convert, but still fell in love with the country uh, and stayed and, and maybe, you know, fell in love with and married women, but uh, didn't want to convert. And it's a very personal choice, obviously, and, and it doesn't uh, make it any less of an adoption of the state of Israel. They just didn't want to make the religious change. Uh, and they're still, you know, accepted and embraced. So uh, it, it was a really interesting process because I got to talk to people about some very intimate details of their life that have nothing to do with basketball. And the players were amazingly open about it. I, I'm so grateful to them because I would never have been able to write anything like this, you know, if they were reluctant to share. Yeah. So uh, you've mentioned a few individual players, um, um, Fred, a few others. Uh, can you highlight a, a few for our listeners uh, that coming away from the reading the book, they would they would pay a special attention to or or be uh, more likely to remember? Well, the book features, uh, you know, some players you probably might not have heard of and some players, you know, if you follow college basketball, you you probably know Corey Carr. Uh, he was an All-American at Texas Tech. He was, uh, you know, played for the U.S. Uh, junior national team with Tim Duncan and, uh, and, and Anthony Parker. And, you know, so Corey was a big high school college star. He played a year in the NBA. Uh, and he's a great example. He, he went, he played high level in Europe in all sorts of different countries and, and eventually just fell in love with Israel uh, and kept coming back and, and turning down less to go, you know, to stay. Um, and now here he is in his late forties and he's playing, you know, second division and, and coaching and developing young Israelis. And, you know, he didn't convert, uh, but he, he stayed and he loved the country and he became a citizen. Uh, you know, so he's an example. Dion Thomas is a, a commentator on the Big Ten Network, uh, University of Illinois' all-time leading scorer, another guy who, you know, was a fringe NBA player uh, and just a dominant college star. Uh, and he spent uh, quite a few years in Israel and actually married an Israeli woman. And he's back in the U.S., but he's about as proud an advocate for Israel as, as I've met. And he's quite vocal about it. Uh so that's a couple. Willie Sims uh, was a star at LSU. Some of these are, are you know, I'm, I'm focusing on some of the older players because they're the ones that have stayed. Uh, but more recently, Anthony Parker, Will Bynum uh, played in the NBA and was a star at Georgia Tech in Arizona and a big Chicago high school uh, legend. Uh, so there's quite a few uh, prominent players. Amari Stoudemire uh, was an NBA all-star and he spent a year in Israel. And, and I talk about him, you know, for a few pages in the book because he's a, an interesting example as well. So it's a good combination of uh, kind of big stars, fringe NBA players, and then some unknown players that you'll learn a lot about. Hmm. That's fascinating. Well, so what's next for you? Uh, well, now, you know, I, I really admire the players uh, that, that are featured in the book. I admire what they uh, do, what they contribute to the state of Israel. Uh, you know, and so for me, I've spent more than 10 years trying to get this book published, uh, and now I'm, I'm 
really focused on promoting it. And, and, you know, we mentioned, uh, just before we started recording that it's this, it's a pretty unknown phenomenon. Uh, you know, more than 800 African American basketball players have gone to Israel in the last 40 years. And I don't think anyone would realize that. And I don't think they'd realize that people stay, uh, and make their life there and serve in the army and, and all these things. So me, my goal now is, is to change that unknown into a known. And so I'm doing things like this podcast, which I, I appreciate a great deal. Uh, doing speaking engagements, uh, you know, media, really just trying to, to tell the world how amazing this cohort of, of basketball players are and, and the impact they make well beyond the 94 feet of a basketball court. They're, they're changing lives. They're, they're, you know, advocating for a country. Uh, and I think people should know, should know that about them. Mm-hmm. So my last question will be a follow up on that. Um, so, you started this project in 2007. That's right. Um, what have been some of the challenges in, in getting it published? Well, as I mentioned, the, the players were amazing. So getting the information uh, was extremely fun and interesting. Uh, and they've been super open. And so that part went really smoothly. And then from their answers to all of my questions, structuring the book went really smoothly because their answers really fit into some very clear themes right away. So a lot of the work was kind of done for me by their answers and their insights. The real challenge was this book doesn't look like anything else. Uh, and when you're in publishing, the publishing business is, is a risky business. There's a lot of upfront money that publishers have to spend to make a book exist. And so they're looking for low risk and they want to see, you know, show me five books that look like this one that have done well. So we know we're going to make our money back. And this doesn't look like anything. So the real challenge was getting uh, first a literary agent and a literary agent is the one that then pitches publishing companies. So it took me years to find a literary agent. And at one point I was uh, oh for 180. I had 180 emails out and didn't get a yes. And then finally got a, a yes from a, a fantastic literary agent in New York. Uh, and after that, lo and behold, got a couple of other offers once, you know, once someone had said they were interested um, but that first agent has been fantastic. His name's Sam Fleischman, and, and he shared my vision. And then he spent a couple of years trying to find a publisher and having the same kind of challenges where publishers were reluctant. But he found Skyhorse Publishing in New York, uh, and they're known for their specialty is finding really interesting books that other publishers don't quite know what to do with. Uh, and they've been amazing to deal with. And so that really was the the biggest delay uh, you know, and obviously things took some time because I have a full time job and, and this isn't it. So, you know, there was everything being done on the side. But the real challenge was convincing people that although it doesn't look like any other book, I think there will be interest here. I think people will enjoy it. I think people will want to read it. Uh, and it was just convincing a couple of other people of that fact. And, and ultimately, uh, they they were convinced. And here we are. OK, we've taken up a lot of your time, David. But um, this this is a great book. Definitely check it out. It's Ali Oop to Ali Ah, African American Hoopsters in the Holy Land by David A. Goldstein. Definitely pick it up. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I really enjoyed the interview. Anything else before we sign off? Just want to thank you again. Really appreciate the uh, the support of this really extraordinary phenomenon and and uh, telling these guys' stories. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much. And till next time. 
You've been listening to the New Books and Sports podcast. I'm James Robinson, PhD candidate at Northeastern University's History Department. And until next time, I'll catch you at the ballgame.